With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul from Blake. Dr. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels on the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. And today's Tuesday, September 20th, 2016. Boy, we got a show for you. And tonight's topic is infection is linked to large increased risk of death by suicide. Yes. Not just any infections, no sorry, Bob. A special type of infection. Actually, some sort of type of treatment. So today, I'm going to talk about this and reveal the hidden link, how your medical therapy may be driving you to suicide. As always, think happens. Now, as uh, you know, I don't do research. I don't make accusations. I only take confessions. So we're going to go to the medical literature itself. Absolutely, that's where we're going to check this out. This is uh, Medscape Family Medicine. And... Um, this is August 10th, 2016, and it says, infection linked to large, not small, large, increased risk for death by suicide. And this is published, uh, Medscape Family Medicine, all of your doctors, some of your family practice doctors, internal medicine doctors, they have this in their inbox. So this is not a surprise to them, although it might be a surprise to you. So infection requiring hospitalization has been linked to a 43% increased risk of dying by suicide. That's pretty good, pretty, pretty big increase. The finding raises questions about the role of biological mechanisms of infection, particularly neuroinflammation on suicide behaviors. So let me give you the English translation of this. 
is saying, hey, you know what? There must be something about infections inflaming the brain that's driving patients to suicide after they have infections. So let's get a little more information and see if we can't figure this out. Now, this is a puzzle for all these researchers, but you and me, I think we can solve this one. Our findings indicate that infections may have a relevant role in the pathophysiological mechanisms of suicidal behavior. In other words, they're saying the infection causes behavior changes, which result in suicide. The investigators with first author, blah, 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 at Copenhagen University in Denmark, you would think they would be more sensible. To our knowledge, this investigation is the largest study to date to examine infections as a predictor of death by suicide, they report. The researchers also note that although the psychiatric disorders and previous suicide attempts might constitute stronger predictors of suicide, we found that hospitalization with infection accounted for a population attributable risk of 10.1%. That's a pretty high risk, 10.1% of suicide. And now we have another piece of very important information. Increased risk of death by suicide among those with a prior infection requiring hospitalization compared with those without prior infection. Now, this means that if you have an infection and for whatever reason decide to stay home and not get it treated at a hospital, your risk of suicide does not increase. But should you get your infection treated at a hospital, boom, risk of infection goes up. Now, this very sensible researcher, I'm sure she has at least a PhD, if not an MD, uh, says she attributes this to the nature of the infection. So in other words, some infections behave differently from others. When they're treated in the hospital, they behave one way. When they're not treated in the hospital, they behave another way. Is this the microorganism could tell if it was being treated in a hospital or not? Hmm. The implication is that one in ten suicides could be prevented if infections were to be eliminated entirely, provided the association was causal, they write. Okay, so we could, now we got two pieces here. We have an infection and we have hospitalization. So the researchers are saying, oh, let's eliminate infection and then the suicidal increase won't happen. But I say, if you need infection and hospitalization to get the increase in suicide, how about we treat infections without the hospital? But anyway, getting ahead of myself here. So let's see what they have to say. These are some erudite, that means learned and pretty smart researchers. Okay, what do they got to say? So the authors note that although physiological predictors of suicide have been studied extensively, less attention has been paid to the effect of biological factors such as infection. In other words, the medical industrial complex has attempted, certainly since I've been involved, you know, when I entered medical school in 1979, has been trying to predict human behavior based on biological metrics. So, for example, if I can measure your temperature or take a blood sample or measure some type of biological feature of yours and determine, aha, you're going to commit suicide or you're going to attempt suicide. And, of course, they have totally failed. The only predictor of attempted suicide is a prior attempt. 
But a prior attempt at suicide is not a prediction of future success. So if a person attempts suicide and fails, that's a negative predictor for suicide. That person may attempt three, five, seven, ten times, but they are actually less likely to succeed at committing suicide than, say, someone on their first attempt. So most people succeed on their first attempt. All right, so let's, let's go on. So we, we know then that, uh, see, 1979, that's, um, you know, 40, uh, 47 years of failure, 47 years of research and unable to predict suicide and who's going to do it. All right, so they're, they're going over their, their scientific process, which we are, we are not going to question, but we'll just mention it so you know. So to estimate the association between hospitalization with infection and the risk of death by suicide, the investigators used Danish nationwide registers, which included 7.2 million Danish citizens aged 15 years or older living in Denmark between July 1st, 1980 and December 31st, 2011. So they really um, took a pretty sizable sample here. The patients were observed during a 32-year follow-up period. The overall rate of hospitalization with infection in the study population was 11.2%, and the rate of infection among individuals who died by suicide was 24%. Okay, so after adjusting for factors that included age and sex and calendar period and cohabitation status, known as married, single, divorced, or living in sin, and uh, amount of money people had, and scores on the Charleston Comorbidity Index, so they, they, they factored out anything that might possibly uh, influence suicide. So the risk, relative ratio of suicide is 1.42 among those with infection compared to those without. In addition, the risk was increased in a dose-dependent de- manner with the highest incidence of suicide among those with seven or more infections. Aha. Among those with just one infection, the relative risk was 1.34% compared to those with no infection. So, in other words, if you had one hospital-type infection, your risk jumped up to 34% higher. And if you had more infections, it could go as high as 42%. So, even one hospitalization for infection of any kind was a substantial risk for increased suicide. The duration of hospitalization was also associated with suicide risk with risks ranging from 2.38 after 94 days of hospitalization down to 1.46 for even one day of hospitalization. This is shocking. Um, So the longer you're in the hospital for for an infection, the worse your risk is for suicide. So your risk actually goes up 2.3-fold if you stay in a hospital for 94 days. So in other words, if you survive your hospitalization and you're discharged after 94 days, uh, you just go ahead and kill yourself. Just, uh, just pointing out the comparison here. So the amount of time since hospitalization was also important, with the strongest effect one in two years after hospitalization compared to those without infection. So in other words, if you're going to kill yourself due to your hospitalization for infection treatment, that increased suicide risk period last for a full two years after hospitalization. That is pretty impressive. That's a long reach. So the increased risk included most types of infection with the exception of otitis media and pregnancy-related infections. This is important because, just by the way, otitis media is generally treated with amoxicillin and pregnancy-related infections are generally treated with penicillin, just by the way. 
The highest suicide risk was among those with hepatitis and AIDS, a finding that is consistent with previous research showing higher rates of suicidal behavior in those populations. Risk was also notably high in association with infections of the respiratory tract and sepsis. So the respiratory tract, the relative risk was 54%. In other words, people who were hospitalized for a respiratory infection after discharge were 54% more likely to commit suicide than someone of equal social standing who had not been admitted to the hospital for a respiratory infection. This is interesting because not all people with, we'll say, hospital-grade infections go to the hospital. And so it seems to me there might be something going on in that hospital that's causing these suicides as much as two years into the future. But don't worry, we're going to get to the bottom of this, even if the researchers cannot. So bacterial infections were associated with only a slightly higher risk for suicide compared to viral infections. So uh, a bacterial infection, 1.37, which is 37% higher, and a viral infection, 26% higher. A finding that likely rules out antibiotic treatment and its effect on the microbiome and influencing the risk, the authors note. Okay, so we've eliminated the effect of the antibiotic on the microbiome. So that's not the cause. All right, so but we're going we're gonna to get there. Notably, the increased suicide risk associated with infection was still 31% higher, even among individuals with no history of a psychiatric diagnosis. So in other words, when they got to the hospital, they actually incurred a risk that wasn't there before. So this is a person never, never depressed in their life, never had, never saw a psychiatrist, had no inkling of mental instability, whatever, and all of a sudden, boom, two years, within two years, they uh, killed themselves. Okay. Including those with no history of schizophrenia or affective disorder. And so if a person has no prior psychiatric history, 40% increased risk of suicide. And no history of substance abuse, again, 35% increased risk of suicide. That's still pretty high for somebody with uh, you know, clean living and no psych history. This was one of the most surprising findings, Dr. Lund Sorensen told Medscape. After accounting for individuals diagnosed with any psychiatric disorder, we still found a significant increased risk of dying by suicide after infections, implying that psychiatric disorders may only partly explain the association, uh, you think. Now, I'll just throw in a little tidbit. People who commit suicide, and this is in the United States, surprisingly, many of them have no prior history of any psychiatric problem. Just put that uh, in the back of your mind. She pointed out that the risk was not higher among those who did have a history of a psychiatric diagnosis. Relative risk was 0.93. This is shocking. So in other words, if someone had a prior history of a psychiatric diagnosis, depression, schizophrenia, I mean, the person is off their rocker, certified, insane, crazy. Their risk of dying of suicide in the two years after discharge was only 93%. No, I'm sorry, it's 93% of those who had, who, who had uh, treatments. In other words, if you have people who are hospitalized for respiratory infection and then they're discharged, within two years, there's a 43% increase of committing suicide. 
that suicide rate was no different. In fact, it was even less among people with psychiatric diagnosis. So a person with psychiatric diagnosis is only 93% as likely to commit suicide within two years after hospitalization for infection, as was a perfectly sane, ordinary person with no psychiatric uh, history. So this implies that psychiatric uh, history is, is not the issue. In other words, that the frailty of the person's brain is not the problem here. Potential mechanisms linked, linking infection to suicidal behavior are numerous, possibly involving a number of different pathways to the brain, the authors note. So now they're going to they're investigate, and someone's going to get a lot of research money to clarify what those pathways might be. I know this because I went to medical school, and I've heard this line of reasoning before. Although certain infectious agents, uh, that means parasites, infect the brain directly, others reach the brain from the periphery. In other words, circulate in the blood. And yet others generate molecular mediators of inflammation that cross from the periphery into the brain. In other words, the parasite doesn't ever go to the brain, it just makes up chemicals and those chemicals go to the brain. And thereby increase the risk of suicide, they write. So this is their hypothesis. In particular, influenza B virus and the parasite Toxoplasma gondii have been linked to suicidal behavior. The latter has been shown to be associated with impulsivity and aggression in psychiatric patients and healthy adults alike. But wait, but wait. How is it influenza B treated outside the hospital does not have the increased suicide risk, but influenza B treated inside the hospital does? I happen to practice medicine, so I know that many children, for example, get influenza B-type infections, um, ear infections, respiratory infections, meningitis, and there is there was, in my practice, um, absolutely no increase uh, risk of suicide. So um, this paragraph is misleading and irrelevant because both of these infections uh, are treated in hospital and outside the hospital. And what we're saying is when you treat these infections in the hospital, there's an increased suicide risk. But when you treat them outside the hospital, there's not the increased suicide risk. So, so this, this, is, this is the essence of the distinction here that we are looking at. So the fact that certain infections increase suicide rate is actually irrelevant because the point is, even though certain infections may increase suicide rate, the observation is when those infections are treated in the hospital, the suicide rate is higher. Okay. Inflammatory evidence. Patients with recent suicide attempts have been shown to have elevated levels of interleukin-6. This is the inflammatory metabolite quinoloic acid. And a recent meta-analysis found a robust link between increased interleukin-6 and levels and increased suicidality. Okay. So this is once a person has a suicide attempt, they go back and they measure their blood and they find this little chemical in their blood. Furthermore, post-mortem brain samples of patients who die from suicide have shown increased interleukin-6 as well as increase in the level of messenger RNA of inflammatory cytokines. So in other words, there's an inflammation of the brain. The authors speculate, that means they guess, that immune system alterations can either lead to or result from infection and could play a role in suicidal behaviors. Now, this inflammatory cytokines 
inflammatory cytokines are, well, inflammatory cytokines. So whether the inflammation is a chemical inflammation or a parasitic inflammation is not determinable. In other words, can't be discerned from this particular test. Then again, the psychological effect of simply being hospitalized, the severe infection, could itself increase the risk, they speculate. So just the, just the psychological effect of simply being hospitalized with a severe infection could increase the risk, yes. However, after adjusting for the effect of long-term and physical disease using the Carlson Comorbidity Index, the association between infection and suicide was still rather large, the authors write. So in other words, we cannot attribute this to grief over a respiratory infection, for example. And so she's saying, well, okay. The fact that the new findings, though compelling, compelling, and, uh, you know, 43% change in any variable in medicine is overwhelming. That's more of a change, improvement, or harm than most therapeutic drugs have. So if being hospitalized was considered a, a drug or a medical intervention, what we're saying is the FDA would certify it as effective in causing suicide if it just increased the suicide rate by 43%. That's how bad this is. And so this researcher says, well, you know, let's not get too excited about this because we don't know if it's a cause and effect relationship between infection and suicidal behavior. Well, certainly pretty darn circumstantial. I mean, 7.2 million people examined over a 22-year period, I would think, I'm sorry, 31-year period, that it's pretty compelling information. Our study can show an association but not prove that serious infections directly contribute to suicide risk, she said. However, our findings do indicate that environmental factors such as infections may be relevant and play an important role in the pathophysiological mechanisms of suicidal behavior. So she's looking at environmental factors. That means something outside of the body, such as infections. Well, how about environmental factors such as being in the hospital? So we're going to get to this. I'm going to take a very close look at what's go- what goes on in the hospital. But what about low-grade infection? So commenting on the findings for Medscape, uh, another MD-PhD, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, said that with inflammation already a heightened area of focus in suicidality and depression, the findings offer highly important new insights. It is known that inflammation is present in patients with depression. Now, wait, we already figured out these patients had no prior history of depression. So in patients with no prior history of depression, we know that the frequency of suicide for up to two years after hospitalization is as high, even slightly higher, than those with prior inflammation slash depression on admission. Okay, so, so again, we have some information here which is misleading and erroneous. In particular, in patients with suicidal ideation, that means people who think about suicide, and behavior, people who attempt suicide, we also know that inflammation can affect the brain and cause depressive symptoms. But few studies have asked the question of where this puzzling inflammation originates from. This is all very interesting, but it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant because we find that the phenomena of increased suicide after hospitalization is not related to depression. So whether depression is related to inflammation is irrelevant. This is the first large epidemiological study highlighting the role of infections 
estimating that over 10% of suicides may be attributable to severe infections. And so i just like to point out that this is a part of the way uh, your doctor is educated with a, a lot of really confusing, indirect stuff, irrelevant information thrown in. Um, it, it really leaves your doctor in a quandary, just not able to sort this out. But, but we are going to figure this out, even though we don't have a Ph.D., so what he's saying then is 10% of suicides may be attributable to severe infections. No, Dodo. 10% of suicides may be attributable to hospitalization for severe infections. Not every severe infection is treated in the hospital. We know this. Dr. Brendan, who co-authored an accompanying editorial, also noted that one of the most worrisome aspects of a possible link between infection and suicide is that infections can be of low grade and long term. Okay, so they corrected for that because the people in the population who did not go to the hospital for infections did not have the increase in suicide. So chronic low grade infections are sometimes not treated and might remain latent in the body for years, she writes. It is possible the link between infections and suicide might become even stronger when such infections are taken into account, not only the ones requiring hospitalization but they already corrected for that. So in other words, if you have a ho- an infection, it's treated in the hospital, your risk of, in- of suicide goes up. So Dr. Brunton believes the study should pave the way for novel, that means new, treatment studies, that means profits for drug companies, that probe the effects of the treatment of infection in depressed or suicidal patients. Trials could attempt to eradicate chronic infections with antibiotics and in cases of remaining inflammation without any pathogen, anti-inflammatory treatments could be considered. So now what you're saying is, well, maybe if there's infl- inflammation without a pathogen, that means without an infection uh, or parasite isolated, we could treat those too. But let's demystify this. If you have inflammation or irritation, there's only two ways to get it. One, chemical. Two, biological, which would be a parasite. So you have a parasite present causing inflammation, like chewing away at your brain, for example, or you have a chemical poisoning, which causes inflammation and deterioration of the brain. Okay, so the perspective of utilizing anti-inflammatory and antibiotic medications in psychiatric patients is revolutionary, she noted. So this is now, of course, just creates two more classes of drugs. We can now give these unfortunate people who are diagnosed as being um, mentally irregular, let's say. So now we're going to add to the antidepressants, antipsychotics, mood stabilizers. We can add antibiotic medications and uh, anti-inflammatory medications. Importantly, patients prone to suicidal thoughts and behavior need to be enrolled in clinical trials rather than being excluded, which is often the case currently. Now, why are they excluded? These patients are excluded for their own protection so that they cannot be exploited and misused and abused with tested drugs, just by the way. So the risk for depression and suicide in patients with severe infections should also be carefully considered by clinicians caring for these patients. And, of course, this study was uh, funded with an unrestricted scholarship grant from the XYZ Foundation. The authors have disclosed no relevant financial relationships. Aha. Uh, One of the 
Dr. Brendan, who did commentary, commentation, or commentary, is a principal investigator of a study on inflammation as a cause of perinatal depression and suicidal behavior that's funded by a grant from the National Institutes of Mental Health. So I don't know if this perinatal depression is depression in the mother or in the infant. You laugh. <laughs> I'm from Syracuse, New York, and the drug companies actually paid the teaching hospital to examine depression in infants. Yes. All right. So what we have here then is we have an increased risk of suicide extending up to two years after admission for hospitalization for infection. Now, let's see if we can't sort this out. Was the infection itself responsible? Is a yes, a no, and a maybe? Well, we can definitely say that let's pick an infection, uh, pneumonia. I picked pneumonia, which is a reasonable one to pick because pneumonia has a 50% increase in suicidality over the two years after admission. All right. Or after discharge, rather. So to, how long does it take someone to get over pneumonia? As a doctor, I can tell you, at most six months, maybe a year. So we can't attribute the inflammation from the pneumonia or the infection to the increased risk of suicide because the suicide risk extends out to two years. So we can pretty much dismiss the infection. What's another reason we can dismiss the infection? It's because we have people in the population who have infections and don't go to the hospital for them and they don't have an increase in suicidality. So let's take a look at, well, the standard of care. Yeah, the standard of care. And where do we go to look at the standard of care? Well, we go to the National Library of Medicine and National Institutes of Health. Yes, that's where we go and look. And what do we find? Well, first thing we take a look at is what is the standard of care? And I looked at the standard of care for uh, respiratory infections. And standard of care is azithromycin, 500 milligrams, one dose, and then 250 milligrams daily for four days. It's a single dose. So that's uh, one treatment. And this would be, this is the outpatient treatment. Um, another one is clarithromycin, uh, 500 milligrams by mouth, and then um, one gram every 24 hours. Or doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice a day. So, what do we know about these? First of all, if you're an outpatient, if your doctor writes your prescription, says, oh, I take this prescription and uh, go get it filled and uh, take these antibiotics, what percent of people, when a doctor hands them a prescription for antibiotics, actually go ahead and get that prescription filled? The answer is, at best, 75%, not a lot. In other words, the 70% that don't get it filled are not going to have side effects. And that's enough to skew the figures to show no increase in suicidality from outpatients who are treated for infections. All right, so what else? If a person received antibiotics in prior three months, they said, well, azithromycin or clarithromycin plus amoxicillin by mouth and um, then 
they go on to, well, levofloxacin or moxifloxacin. And for the inpatients, these are all outpatient regimens, by the way. So these are outpatient regimens. So for the outpatient, your doctor's going to give you azithromycin, clarithromycin, doxycycline, levofloxacin, or moxifloxacin. And he's going to write your prescription. He's going to trust you to go get that filled. And we know that 25% of you are not going to do that. You're not going to do it. So what if you're an inpatient? And those of you who get it filled, a lot of you aren't going to take it all the way to the end. Shame on you. You're not going to take the full course. And still others are going to miss doses. And so overall, this is less than a 50% compliance rate with the outpatient antibiotics, just like, by the way. All right. So what if the person's in the hospital? What are they going to get? Well, they're going to get levofloxacin, IV, moxifloxacin, IV, they have a choice of getting it orally, but the nurse hands it to you and stands there and watches you take it. And if you're inpatient, severe uh, respiratory infection, you'll get levofloxacin, moxifloxacin, ceftriaxone, azithromycin. And then we even go so far as, again, um, more of the floxacin. So what does this mean? What is, what is What's... Uh, Break this down. So if we go on the Internet to the um, FDA website, what does the FDA say about this? Well, the FDA says, well, heck with the FDA. Let's try the World Health Organization. Quinolone antibiotics and suicidal behavior. Analysis of the World Health Organization's adverse drug reactions database and discussion of potential mechanisms. So in other words, there is no question that quinolone antibiotics cause suicidal behavior. Well, let's get the English translation. What's a quinolone? Quinolone is levofloxin, moxifloxin, norfloxin, ciprofloxin, oxifloxin, sparfloxin, and torafloxin, trovan. So all these floxin antibiotics cause suicidal behavior. Yeah. And doxycycline, uh, another favorite for respiratory infections, also causes suicidal behavior. This is according to the National Institutes of Health. It's not, not my research. It's their research. This is what they say. And I'm going to take the word for it because the government says it must be true. And so uh, azithromycin also has been associated with suicidality as well as clarithromycin and doxycycline. All of these are antibiotics used for respiratory infections. No wonder respiratory infections have a 50% increase in suicidality within two years. Duh. Um, now, these are chemicals that, that go into the body. So chemicals can attach to the brain, attach in the body, get stuck in the liver, in the connective tissue, in the fat tissue, and stay for quite a very long time, depending on the person's level of hepatic and, uh, I mean, liver and kidney function. So these are antibiotics given as an outpatient. What if you're an inpatient? Well, if you're an inpatient, you get levofloxin, known to cause suicide, moxifloxin, known to cause suicide. So what else we got for you? More levofloxin, more moxifloxin, and azithromycin, but it gets better because you have levofloxin, moxifloxin, more. And so I was looking up these drugs, and I said... Well, what's this uh, tigacycline? They give that inpatient, you know, for respiratory infections. 
September 27, 2013, death occurred in 4% of patients receiving this drug compared to 3% given other antibiotics. So in other words, the death was increased by 4 minus 3 is 1, divided by 3, 33% increase in death with this particular antibiotic. Like, what? <laughs> That's outrageous. It doesn't say when they die. So what's the definition of death? You need to know that. Um, the definition of death due to hospitalization means the person dies within 30 days of, hosp- of discharge. So if the person dies while in the hospital or 30 days after discharge, that is a hospital-related death. And so this uh, tigacycline is an antibiotic that literally increases the person's chances of dying by 33%. Um, shocking. So, data from various sources, including PubMed, European Medicines Agencies, and the FDA, uh, were um, checked. And um, this is what they this is what they found. And so, what we see here then is hospitalized patients hospitalized with pneumonia are treated with seriously dangerous drugs. Not only that, but they are treated disproportionately with drugs that actually cause or increase the risk of suicide. And furthermore, a person in the hospital is more likely to be taking their antibiotics every day while they're in the hospital because it's either being put into their IV tubing or they're being supervised in terms of taking it. So the increase in suicidality is sitting right here, you know, pretty plain for all the world to see, all we need to do is examine the standard of care. And this mechanism of death is not mediated. In other words, there's no evidence that it's mediated by changes in the microbiome. If you have um, experience with people who take antibiotics long-term or take them as instructed, either way, it's bad news, um, you find that disruption to the microbiome can last 3, 5, 10, 20 years. So disruption to the microbiome does not really explain the suicidality. My guess is that this is a direct chemical reaction, a property of these drugs, and that these drugs are not very efficiently excreted from the body. We know this especially with the the floxacin, the levofloxacin, the moxifloxacin. These drugs hang around for a long time, and so do their effects. So these drugs are um, responsible for devastating effects. Levofloxacin, for example, causes uh, dissolving of tendons, can cripple you where you can't walk, and that effect from the levofloxacin can last for, um, for years. And so these drugs have a history of very long-reaching effects. And so to do a study like this and scratch your head and say, how how can this this happen? It must be the underlying infection. When you're using a whole bunch of drugs here to treat these hospital-based infections, they're known to cause an increase in suicidality. Like, duh, what do you expect? Of course, uh, 
this is this is obviously this is disingenuous. This is outrageous. So why would anyone do such a study and not even take the little ten minute exercise that I did of just checking, well, what's the standard of care for these infections, and do these drugs cause suicide? Why would they just do this kind of research and not not, not check those things? When doctors receive stuff like this in their box, the way they interpret it, I'll give you this as the doctor interpretation, not the English interpretation. The doctor interpretation is, oh, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing because they're researching it. They're looking at it. And when they find the answer, they'll let me know. And then I'll know what adjustments to make in my therapy. That's it. And when I was in medical school, we got these types of assurances all the time. We're giving this XYZ therapy. People are getting worse. In fact, they're dying. But don't worry. Keep doing this because there's ongoing research, and it's going to give us the answer. And when it does, by golly, we're going to change what we're doing. But right now, we've got to keep doing what we're doing. Now, there is a head-scratcher. Well, at least for me it was. When I was in medical school, I said, wait, this makes no sense. So what we have here, then, is uh, a practice of treating infections with drugs that cause suicide. So the person might survive their hospitalization, but even then we know that 1% of the deaths that do occur in the hospital are from therapy right then and there in the hospital. And now we have an extra effect, which is that now these people are going to go ahead and leave the hospital and commit suicide. Why? We know it, because we gave them drugs that cause suicide, of course. This is very simple. Yeah, very straightforward. So... This is a station identification. You're listening to Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. And this is actually a good time for questions. <laughs> okay. Uh, the call-in number is 914-338-0695. And in our chat room, which is healing with drdaniels.chatango.com, we have some people who are totally dumbfounded. <laughs> yes. All right, let's uh, let's take a look at a chat room question. <laughs> Dr. Daniels, what a great topic. The confusion and disinformation is unbelievable. Question. Everyone is now saying do not wash your meat such as chicken before cooking. Is that really best? It doesn't matter. Uh, first of all, why are you washing your chicken? You're probably washing your chicken because you're trying to get rid of something like uh, salmonella. Or maybe you're washing your chicken because you know chickens can get antibiotics and maybe they have antibiotic-resistant um, germs and you like to maybe wash that off your chicken. Yeah, possible. That, 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 that might be why. Well, don't worry. Uh, because these antibiotics have been ingested by the chicken and have contaminated all of the chicken's tissues. So it's, not, it's illegal to uh, inject these chickens with antibiotics, which is what they used to do. It is not illegal to feed chickens ground-up cows that have been pumped full of antibiotics. Right. And it's not illegal to put antibiotics in the chicken feed, but it is illegal to inject the chickens with antibiotics. If you Google egg-laying feed, I did this, Google egg, E-G-G, space, L-A-Y-A-N-G-I-N-G, egg-laying feed, you will see that it has uh, one of these phloxus and antibiotics in it. That's just what they give chickens to get them to lay eggs. So um, 
the chicken has antibiotics throughout all of its fibers and tissue. And you can wash that chicken in a wash machine if you want to. It is still going to have A, antibiotics, and B, antibiotic-resistant organisms in it. So your best bet, if you want to eat chicken, is to eat chickens that um, actually ran around and did not um, receive any antibiotics, either by injection or in their chicken feed or via eating ground-up cows. So I would say it's futile to wash your meat before you eat it. It just It's not really addressing the real problem. It's just something to keep you occupied. <laughs> so Dr. Daniels, if the person is waiting for more research and doing more research, does this mean they're going to repeat it until they get a result they want? Um, possibly. I think a more um, instructed, instructional answer, which was kind of informed by this, what this person said, is that they're going to keep doing research until they find research showing that there's a drug that will improve this outcome. So they're going to keep doing research and the research is geared towards finding a drug, an anti-inflammatory, or finding another antibiotic, as if the suicide-causing antibiotics we're already using aren't enough. And so they've already told you what they're going to research. They're not going to research the cause. They know what the cause is. The cause is the infection. And so now, and the cause is the inflammation of the brain. So they're going to, get, they're going to look for, in future research, an anti-inflammatory drug that's going to address the brain. And they're going to look for another antibiotic that's going to address what may be a hidden infection. So this is what future research is going to be aimed at, which means they're never going to get at the answer, which is they're using antibiotics already that cause suicide. <laughs> okay, so the person said, well, can you really be sure the chicken didn't get antibiotics if you didn't raise it yourself? Bingo. And there are cities in the United States now that have, have rescinded their ordinances prohibiting citizens from raising chickens within city limits. So people have actually started raising their own chickens. Now, what's the problem with that? I won't say problem, the hazard. Because I was going to start raising my own chickens. Chickens will not roost. They will not roost unless you give them some type of supplemental feed. And so if you supplement your chickens with feed from the feed store, you don't know what's in that feed. So if you want your chickens to roost, then maybe you'll supplement them with maybe compost or something like that that's nearby the chicken coop. But um, chickens, if you make them 100% scratch or fend for themselves, they're not going uh, to go sleep in chicken coop. They're going to go hither, thither, and yon, and the fox will get them and all kinds of other stuff. Okay, so uh, chat room says, wow, thank you, Dr. Daniels. Okay. <laughs> Okay, down to the end. Is it safe to purchase, and is it safe to take pure gum spirits of turpentine from eucalyptus? No, eucalyptus is not pure gum spirits. Eucalyptus is just turpentine, so it has to be pure gum spirits. It has to be from the pine tree. So pure gum spirits, eucalyptus will not do. And yes, plastic bottles, okay. Uh, I live in Panama, and um, all we have are plastic bottles, and so that's what I use. Dr. Daniels, does sinusitis cause migraines? It can. It absolutely can. 
So one, if you have migraines and you have a, a sniffly nose, a neti pot might be in your future for sure. Okay, so we have a question from a caller. Let me see if I can get these uh, buttons right. Hi, you're on the air. Your name and your question? Alrighty, so let's go back to our chat room. (laughs) Okay, does this mean that a person can really have a pathogenic infection like syphilis, which is being called pneumonia? And the answer is yes, absolutely. So what this study is saying then is people can have low-grade, long-term infections affecting their their mental behavior. But that would not account for the sudden spike in suicide when a person's admitted to a hospital. So again, what they're doing is mixing apples and oranges. (laughs) Okay. This is an off-topic question, but I'll answer it. How did you get traffic to your website before you started doing radio shows? Um, word of mouth. First thing was uh, word of mouth. Uh, if you have a good product, uh, people buy it, they tell their friends, and uh, things spread by word of mouth. Then um, I used to do uh, presentations because I was still in the, in the United States way, way, way back when. Uh, so I do presentations. Um, and also I would be a guest on other people's radio shows. But the best thing, I think, was my viral report. So write a report about something interesting that people like, and it'll spread around the world. Does the epidural injection... Okay. So question, uh, Dr. Dan, does the epidural injection to the spine for pregnant women always stay there in the body, or is there a way to take it out of the body? It depends on what they injected. So there are many different um, spinal injections. But for the most part, pretty much, it stays there. Uh, there's good news, of course, and there's bad news. Uh, the good news, of course, doesn't spread to the rest of the body. The bad news, of course, it can affect the, uh, the brain. Now, the spinal epidural, oh, this person said it has an epidural, not the spinal. So epidural means it was injected around the sac. It didn't exactly, it didn't go into the spinal column. So it's around the um, epidural sac. So it didn't penetrate the barrier into the cerebral spinal fluid. Does turpentine help? Um, question is help what? So the question might be, would turpentine help if a person is having back pain? Usually it does. Many women experience back pain. What do you suggest? So if you've had an epidural um, for the delivery of your baby, and you're having um, long-term chronic uh, back pain, I would suggest uh, definitely dietary change and cleansing because it's kind of like a domino effect. When you, when you have chemicals deposited in the space of your body, whether it's an injection site uh, for a vaccine or whether uh, it's a depositing of these chemicals around the spine, then whenever your body picks up toxins, those toxins are going to go to that one spot. So 
not having your body pick up toxins is huge. And that would mean, you know, drinking water, doing enemas, um, eating organic food. All of those things have a pretty, a very big impact. What is a brown line in the toenail? Um, brown line in the toenail is either parasites or toxins. And they're just being, they're basically, um, at, they're behind the cuticle line. So you have a cuticle line, one line of it is, is the nail, other line is uh, you, the body. And there's, there's um, parasites or toxins sitting right there just behind the cuticle line, and they're being infused into the nail as it's being made. <laughs> what do you think would be a great alternative to using a steroid injection for a herniated cervical disc in the neck? Alternating hot and cold packs. Yeah, alternating hot and cold packs. Okay, here's a piece of confusion, so let's uh, straighten this out. I've read that bacteria and parasites are co-infections. Okay, so bacteria is a word we use for parasites. So people in industrialized countries will think they don't have parasites. So bacteria and parasites are one in the same. Okay, so the, we cleared that up. Let's go on to the rest of the question. Meaning, if you have one pathogen present, you will probably have more than one. Okay, again, um, the body is a microbiome which has uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of different species or populations of organisms. And so there's always more than one pathogen present. It's simply a matter of does your immune system have the uh, miscreants or the misbehave, misbehaving ones under control. So this idea that you have one pathogen, one disease, um, is simply not true. It, and it's very misleading, and I think it's the reason why a lot of people who are infested with parasites don't ever make any progress because they insist on chasing this one or that one. Okay. Okay. Um, da -dum, da -dum, da -dum, da -dum. <laughs> okay. Dr. Daniel, a lot of people are on psychotropic medications now. And does this allow the doctor to blame the death on the patient's mental illness rather than take the responsibility themselves? Um, it is defined, the definition. By definition, suicide is suicide. In other words, the patient killed himself. At no point would um, the doctor ever accept responsibility for that. Now, there is a very interesting case wending its way to the courts, I believe in Florida, where a family practice doctor um, prescribed a medication which is believed to have caused a person's suicide or lack of prescription, whatever. And so the question is, can a doctor be blamed for a patient's suicide? So that is now in the courts, and it is being determined, and so we will see. These things may take a year or two to work themselves out, but we'll see. So if a doctor can be blamed for a person committing suicide, then that opens the door to a doctor being blamed when a person commits suicide as a side effect of, say, an antibiotic or something like that. So very, very interesting. And so we're just going to have to wait and see how that shakes out. Okay.
Okay. Dr. Daniels, what exactly are rope worms? I've done enemas and seen rope worms come out, and rope worms have been analyzed and found to consist of human DNA. This is very confusing. What do you make of it? Okay. So these things that are rope worms are actually not rope worms. They're actually dead human tissue that is shaped as a rope because that's the shape of the intestines. Intestines are round shape. And so as the uh, human tissue peels off the sides of the intestines and it's, uh, the intestines contract and works its way out, it looks like a rope worm. I've sent these things for um, pathological analysis over the years more times than I care to admit. And each time it comes back, no parasites. And so unless something comes out of your body squiggling and moving, chances are it's not a worm. And so these things that are shaped like ropes that come out are actually your dead tissue that the parasites have been eating on and not parasites themselves. Okay. Does turpentine actually kill candida in the intestines or is it killing parasites and bacteria that are causing the candida to grow? That's an interesting question. Um, Actually, the turpentine works um, against bacteria, against viruses, and most importantly, against worms. Because generally, the the primary infection is the worms get in there, start chewing away at you, eating you alive, literally, and then the bacteria go in and start um, eating, and the candida, the um, devitalized tissue and damaged tissue. And so what the turpentine does is, one, actually repairs damaged tissue, Number two, it gets these um, parasites to let go and leave your body. So turpentine used in um, doses, according to the amounts in the Candida Cleaner Report, which you can get at vitalitycapsules.com forward slash candida, um, does not kill parasites. But what it does do is it um, decreases their metabolic activity and it um, gets them to leave. (laughs) Okay. All right, that looks like everything. (laughs) Okay, let's see. Okay, Dr. Daniels, we only have have, uh, two minutes here, so let me see if we can get this question. Uh, my son, a veteran, was in Iraq for three times, recently tried to kill himself. We see it as divine intervention that the gun did not go off when he pulled the trigger. But it brought him to his senses. He doesn't talk with me about his experiences, so I don't know, like, what happened. Of course, PTSD always plays a key role. Thank you, Gail. Uh, they gave those guys in uh, Iraq quite a bit of uh, drugs. In fact, they even gave them nerve pills. I did a um, radio show uh, with my guest was a veteran from the Gulf War who had PTSD. I forget the name of the show, but um, a lot happened in Iraq. And the best way to help him would be to, to help him detox if he'll cooperate with that because they put so much junk into his body. 
All right, that is it. We are at the end of the show, end of another very interesting topic. As always, think happens. And I know you guys have a lot of questions, and you probably really want to know how to heal yourself without going to emergency rooms and putting your life on the line. So shoot an email to Shali at vitalitycapsules.com. I'm starting a program where I'm teaching people to heal so they don't have to uh, risk their life with the medical industrial complex. So that's Shali, S-H-A-L-E-E, at vitalitycapsules.com. Oh, and stay tuned for our next Vitality Capsule sale, so watch your mailbox. And that is it. See you next week. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.